From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today, a child and family therapist gives tips on how to talk to kids about racism. We'll learn how researchers are investigating high algae levels in Lake Michigan, despite low levels of what they thought had been the culprit. Phosphorus was at really low concentrations in Lake Michigan. So the question was, well, why do we have this problem coming back? It seems that we've solved the phosphorus problem. Plus, we'll look at our book of the month, a romantic, dramatic novel which could be a great escape from your own personal drama. The guy she was supposed to go visit her parents would have actually broke up with her. Now she has to go out to the Chicago suburbs to go with her parents so that her baby sister, Tabitha's boyfriend, can come and ask for her hand in marriage. So, <laughs> no pressure there. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Last month, Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man in Memphis, Tennessee, died after being severely beaten by at least five police officers during a traffic stop. This latest act of police brutality has sparked nationwide protests and marches, including here in Milwaukee. For many kids, these demonstrations can raise a lot of questions about race and racism. These can be difficult topics to discuss, but child and family therapist Lakeisha Russell says it's helpful to have these conversations with young children. Research shows that kids can pick up these racial biases as early as four years old. To learn more about how to talk to kids of all ages about race, racism, and the current protests, Russell joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. Lakeisha Russell, welcome to Lake Effect. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for having me. So parents raise kids with phrases like everyone is equal or be colorblind, but this is without thinking about tools kids don't necessarily have to navigate racism, especially later in life. So with recent events and protests against police brutality and systemic racism, how can parents address their own biases and unconscious behaviors that we don't necessarily realize kids are picking up on? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think just for parents to do some of that introspection, so some of that self-questioning work, and, you know, maybe it's them taking that time out to write down, okay, how am I around this certain group? of people, you know, if I'm in these spaces with them in the workplace or educational systems, like how do I interact with them? How do I connect with them? Have I ever said anything that might have been triggering for them or leading them to think, "Mm, could I be a little racist? And do you think it's important for parents to recognize, oh, I haven't had any of these kind of conversations with my kids yet? You know, should it be up to the parents to bring this up and not necessarily waiting for your kid to ask about what's happening on the news? Yeah, because you want to open up that dialogue with your child. And, you know, sometimes if we wait for our kids to come to us with things, you know, it might be years down the line or it might not happen at all. And so I would encourage parents to go ahead and set that groundwork because what we know to be true is like by age four, kids are already picking up those racial biases. And so the younger we start, the better. So I encourage parents to have those conversations as early as they possibly can. 
So you mentioned by age four, these behaviors can be picked up. So let's kind of divide up uh, because kids can range, obviously, in ages. So let's divide things, toddlers, elementary age school kids, and teenagers. So within these three categories, what do you think is the best way to approach these conversations for these age groups? And, And we can start with toddlers. Yeah, so with toddlers, what we know is they love stories, right? (laughs) Or cartoons, shows, things like that. And so I would encourage parents to tap into some of those resources, whether it be books or maybe it's shows that highlights other characters of other ethnicities in a positive light and you know just asking your child so what do you think about seeing that like do they seem to be treated fairly if it was like a situation involving kids of color in a certain segment and so just using those kind of tools whether it's books or if it's tv shows just of other ethnicities and cultures that are displayed in the positive light. Because again, you want to reinforce that just because you don't look like me doesn't mean that I'm bad. Right. When it comes to elementary age school kids, what is this age range? And what do you recommend for uh, a little more deeper conversations compared to what we're talking about with toddlers? Right. And so typically for elementary age kids, it's usually like six years old to like 12 or 11 years old. Um, And I would recommend, you know, just having kind of direct conversations with them in the sense of what have you been hearing in the news as of late about what's going on? How does that make you feel? How do you think we can help? So just asking more developed questions than you would the toddler age. But again, it's age appropriate. It's not so in your face as if you were talking to your teenager about it. Right. So let's get to teenagers because with teenagers is what we're also seeing is obviously kids also want to take part in activism and fight for change. So when it comes to engaging with our teens and yourself as a black mother, let's talk about some of the differences that non-POC parents would have with their teenagers versus teenagers that come from families that are Black or people of color. Yeah. And so, you know, you made a good point that I see it now, especially like on my social media, what we see in the news is that teenagers really want to take part in what's going on and be that change. And I would just encourage parents to process that with them, you know, and, and not be afraid to do that with them. Because again, I feel like this generation is will be the change that we've been waiting for that will help us see these changes and make headway with things changing. And so I would just encourage parents of teenagers just to process that with them and, you know, finding different ways that they can. Because sometimes, you know, you don't always need to be at the forefront in terms of like the protesting. Maybe it's other ways that you can like spread the word and just get other people to start changing. Maybe it's something you do on social media where you get your friends together, you have these conversations live where other people are able to tap into them. Or maybe it's starting in your home, you know, maybe it's having those conversations with your parents to help change just how they're thinking about things. How can parents make a space for their kids to demonstrate that this is a safe place to freely share what kids are thinking about, even if they don't fully understand what's happening, you know, because parents can decide to want to jump on a topic or control something, sometimes shut it down. um, And if their kids are reticent to have those conversations, especially in this moment, how can parents really open up a safe space? 
Yeah, and I think it's just by parents actively listening, listening to what your child is sharing with you and just understanding as a parent, like we want to be able to like have all the answers right then and there and be able to create that dialogue. But it's okay just to listen, you know, and absorb everything that they're saying and then come back to things if you're not really sure on how to respond, but just provide that safe space of non-judgment and just actively listening to what your child is sharing with you. What would you say to parents who may have that first reaction of, no, my kid's too little to talk about this. I'm not going to go down this road right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would encourage parents, you know, to, if we can dismantle that thinking, because at the end of the day, kids pick up on how we respond and react to situations. And, you know, whether we are doing it consciously or unconsciously, they've already picked up racial biases and standards. And so just for parents to know that, that our kids are watching how we're interacting with people, every kind of people. And so just to keep that at the forefront and that it's not a conversation that you have to be afraid of having, because I think we come from that lens of as parents, we got to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it. But for parents to give themselves that grace to understand like, we are still learning how to talk about race as adults, even to this day. So it's okay if you don't have all those answers with your kids, but just knowing that the earlier, the better with the conversation is best. So black parents are having very different conversations than white parents with their kids around the topic, especially of police brutality um, for the teenagers, for the older kids that, and even younger ones that are seeing protests across the country and militarized police, you know, these are very strong images that kids can pick up on. Um, You know, for example, most white children are told the police are safe. You go to them if you're in trouble, while black children are told a very different reality, such as this is what you need to do if you're pulled over or if you encounter. So how can we help kids empathize with this and also model anti-racism behaviors? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think just, again, going back, sharing those stories, those historical stories of just the injustices and the inequalities of Black people and white people, you know, if if we can just be candid and real and honest about it. And, you know, and not in a way that is scaring kids, because I definitely am not for scaring kids into, like, empathizing with others, but, you know, giving them real descriptions or real examples of, you know, your classmate who looks different than you has to go and have different stories told to them about who we deem to be safe in the community. And so how do you think that makes them feel? Because I feel like once we can tackle and get tap into the lens of how does it make the other person feel? I feel like that better helps us to empathize and have compassion with others because again, it's just you going into their shoes. So maybe it's the parent just having that conversation. Like if that was you, how do you think you would feel? You know, and the kid might be like, I might be sad. I might be frustrated, you know, give you all these emotion words and then go into that deeper dive on the importance of equality and justice. And what would you say to parents now to encourage self-education, but also the education of their kids, no matter what age and what kind of household they have? Yeah, I would tell parents to continue to be open-minded. 
you know, and if you need help, it's okay to ask professionals or maybe ask um, friend, trusted friends or family members that can help bridge this dialogue. And then I'm a firm believer in reading, <laughs> you know, because again, it's so much literature out there about racism, how to talk to kids, you know, how to make change within systems of systemic racism. And so I would just encourage parents to tap into every possible resource. Well, Lakeisha Russell, you are certainly one of those resources, and I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today about this very important topic. Thank you for having me. Lakeisha Russell is a child and family therapist at the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski back in 2020, and you can listen to their full conversation at wuwm.com. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Chuck Quirmbach, filling in for Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. Well, hi, J.R. Happy February, and welcome back to Capital Notes. Oh, thanks for having me. It being February, we're only a couple of weeks away from the Supreme Court primary in Wisconsin. What are the latest happenings in that race? Well, we were seeing the ad traffic pick up quite a bit. Uh, last week, for example, we have, saw Jennifer Doral, the conservative from Waukesha County, uh, running her first TV and radio ads. The initial buy is about $130,000, though more was on the way, it looked like. Um, then we also saw Fair Courts America, which has been backing conservative Daniel Kelly, add about $500,000 in TV to its buy. So it's up to about seven hundred fifty grand so far between TV and radio. And the question I've been asking insiders is, does Doro have enough in terms of her ad buy to offset that spending disparity with Fair Courts America? And the answer has been yes, but with a caveat. And that caveat is if it all stays positive. If it goes negative, you know, all bets are off. And, you know, for Doro, she's got a combination of things. She's got, you know, air cover right now that she's providing for herself. She's not having the outside groups doing stuff for her, which is, you know, worth noting. But talk radio in Milwaukee is somewhat friendly to her. Maybe not, you know, going to bat for her yet, but at least uh, overall, but at least friendly to her. And you have like Mark Belling, who's, you know, a big figure in conservative talk radio, really hammering on Dan Kelly, Daniel Kelly, to drop out of the race. He thinks he can't win in April. So, you know, add that together and that, that can be a potent force. But what we're watching is, will this race get, you know, nasty, a little, little unpleasant? Um, you're seeing sniping between... Kelly and Doro, both directly and amongst their supporters. You know, there's a forum uh, last week in which they were asked, would they support the other if they didn't win the primary or get through the primary? And uh, Doro said, yes, she would support Kelly. And Kelly said, no, I, I can't commit to that because he doesn't think that she is tested and doesn't want to have another Brian Hagedorn in the Supreme Court. Now, Brian won in 2019 in part because conservative groups rallied to his support when he was an underdog in that race. They feel like he has kind of abandoned them, conservatives do, because he's sided with liberals, a number of high-profile cases in the court. So Kelly's going to make this push of, you know, I'm the one who is a tried-and-true conservative. I'm the one that's been tested. And so we're watching to see, does that just turn from sniping into actual negative ads? And, you know, negative ads can be both good and bad. They, they do work, but you also have a risk sometimes that can boomerang back on you. And 
and cause you some grief. I've already heard from some Republicans who picked up chatter among grassroots unhappy with Kelly's answer about whether to support Doro because the race of the court in April is for the ideological balance of the court. If conservatives lose this seat, they lose control of the court. There's a lot at stake there for them and for liberals. The other thing that came up during another of their debates last week was Doro sort of repeating this bit about, I'm the one that can win. That's something you've heard as well? Yeah, there are two kind of camps developing among those who are kind of right of the dial politically when it comes to the Supreme Court race. One is the camp that monk service who wants somebody who has been tested, quote unquote, who they know exactly where they stand on big constitutional issues. Other camp is like, let's just win. We don't care if there are certain like questions or uncertainties. We want to win. And that camp of we want to win kind of leans toward Doro. They think that she is a more attractive candidate in general election. And part of that's because, you know, Kelly lost already one time. He's appointed the bench by Scott Walker in 2016, ran for a full 10-year term in 2020 and lost like 10 points, I think it was. Now, at the time, there was a Democratic primary for president still kind of chugging along. Now, granted, Joe Biden all but wrapped up the nomination, but it was still contested and that drove turnout. That probably contributed to the results. But you still have this kind of argument from the Doro folks. If Kelly had a shot, as time has passed, we should get behind her. As of this moment, we don't know of any more forums before the primary involving all four candidates. Uh, why is that, do you think? Now they're communicating through the paid resources. I mean, Everett Mitchell's the only one who does not have any air cover right now. We'll see if that comes sooner or later. Janet Protasewicz, she's put down more than $700,000 in TV. That's a, a healthy buy. In talking to people, there's a perception that Protasewicz is kind of coalescing the Democratic vote, you know, the Dem establishment. You're seeing a lot of unions endorsing her, kind of more come in every week. Uh, she's kind of solidifying that perception that she is in the best spot to merge of the two liberals. If you had to bet your mortgage payment, and how things would go, remember, it's a four-way primary, top two finishers, advanced. I think people really are kind of betting on per se what you get through right now as, you know, lock and change in a couple of weeks. They see her as a favor to get through. And then they're kind of watching that conservative side. What what happens there in those exchanges that, that things get negative and that, that negativity go public before the primary. Okay. Well, we're also only a couple of weeks away from a primary in the southeastern Wisconsin State Senate District, Senate District 8, where Alberta Darling, longtime Republican, has left office. Uh, there is still a four-way primary on the 21st. Uh, some developments there, as I understand it. Yeah, we're starting to see ads fly, um, and they're coming from, in part, from two D.C.-based groups. Uh, one, Republican State Leadership Committee. Uh, looking at filing with the Ethics Commission, they spent about $83,000 on mail. Another $70,000 on TV. That's all backing Dan Canodal, one of three Republicans running in that primary. There's also a group that was founded in part by former U.S. Rep. Adam Kinzinger called Americans Keeping Country First. They were founded uh, basically to advocate or uh, help Republicans who had voted to impeach Donald Trump after the uh, violence protest at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. They're doing about 55 grand in digital ads opposing Janelle Branchen, another Republican in that primary, that freeway race between those two and Van Mobley, the Thingsville Village president. And it underscores the perception to insiders that the Republican establishment would rather see Dan Canola get through. They think Canodal is a stronger candidate in a general election. And the ads we're seeing from the Democrat, Jody Habish-Sinkin, kind of backs that up because she's elevating Branchen in a way. She has two ads out. Habish-Sinkin does. One is a bio piece 
talks about her background. Uh, she'll advocate for keeping communities safe and for a woman's right to choose. Another one features a so, several women talking about abortion and labeling Branchen too conservative, extreme on abortion, that uh, she was pro-life Wisconsin's legislator of the year, whereas Senekin would protect women's right to choose. It's a classic example of trying to pick your opponent. You're a conservative voter and you see that Janelle Branchen is quote-unquote too conservative. You see somebody promoting her you know, anti-abortion credentials, that might be attractive to you. You might like that. Branchin' by yourself, we're not seeing much traffic so far in terms of TV or radio. We're not seeing outside groups doing a lot for her yet. But there's a way to kind of try and elevate her for Democrats because they think, again, that if they're facing her, Janelle Branchin, they have a better shot to win a seat that is really not a swing seat. It is a, it's a pretty Republican seat, not like deep red. You can never win if you're Democrat, but it's in a normal environment, normal turnout. It's not a swing seat. But, you know, in this kind of a race with the Supreme Court race, top of the ticket, um, abortion still a major issue. We're talking a suburban Milwaukee seat where abortion you know, plays. Uh, not great for conservatives sometimes. It could help put that seat in play if you have somebody who's not a stronger candidate for Republicans get to that primary. That pick-your-opponent strategy it came up in some of the races around the nation last year. Um, didn't always work, did it? No, not always. And, you know, you always run the risk, too, of elevating somebody you think is extreme who can still win. You know, I think Democrats look, hey, this is not a seat we should be winning normally. Uh, we are basically going for it. It's not going to switch the majority in the Senate, but it would deny Republicans a two-thirds majority in the Senate if Habersetting can won that race in April. And we had a visit in Milwaukee last week from the chairperson of the RNC Republican National Committee, Vanna McDaniel, ostensibly talking about the upcoming 2024 RNC convention. But uh, she's got some troubles on her hands with the national uh, Republicans, Donald Trump. Not everybody likes him, uh, but he's in the game. Is there an impact of that national uncertainty over Trump among the Republican Party. Is there an impact here right now? Yeah, I mean, McDaniel talked about how they're all going to reunite after the primary and be, you know, all one big happy family come summer of 2024 and have a convention here. I don't know that talking to other folks that they think that's a given. If Donald Trump is not the nominee, for example, what's he going to do? There is a train of thought that he might try and tear the whole place down because he's not happy about not being the nominee. If he is the nominee, do you have some Republicans who just have fatigue over Donald Trump and say, not again? You know, I mean, Trump won in 2016, but Republicans lost the House and Senate in 2018. Uh, they lost the White House in 2020. They didn't retake the Senate in 2022. I mean, yes, they won the House, but narrowly. Um, there are a lot of things going on that some Republicans feel like it's time to go from Donald Trump. So there's a lot of questions about how this is going to play out for them between now and next summer that it may be hard to come back together after things all over with. Well, Jr. on the Democratic side of things, President Biden uh, coming to the Madison area this week. What do we know about that visit and what do you think about it? Oh, it's part of a post-State of the Union kind of swing. Uh, he's going to be in Wisconsin on Wednesday, then Florida the next day. Um, he's coming to the Madison area. I mean, look, it's clear that Biden is going to tout the latest job numbers. We saw those on Friday, I believe. A half million new jobs created. He wants to project an image of the economy being resilient. You know, that's been interesting. There were all kinds of talk about whether we'd hit a recession uh, sometime this year. And yes, there were a couple of quarters, of, or at least one quarter of negative growth in 2022. But uh, we ended the year on a positive note. We had this new jobs number. Inflation is still an issue. 
but Biden wants to talk about the economy being strong because, you know, that's really can make or break his reelection bid in 2024. Granted, he hasn't officially announced yet, right? But we expect him to, all signs are there he's going to, and the economy often drives a reelection bid for a president. In Wisconsin, the Democratic establishment still appears clearly behind the president. Would you agree? Yeah, you know, we haven't seen a Marquette poll uh, for a while to see where the Democratic voters are in general. Uh, the presidents have not been great in polling that we've seen. But, you know, you don't have to have great numbers to have a close race in Wisconsin or even win. Uh, we've seen that with Donald Trump, right? His numbers were upside down in 2016. He still won the state. In 2020, his numbers weren't great, and he only lost by 21,000 votes. So the economy's going to drive things. If inflation gets under control, if gas prices come down, you know, all these things that have been kind of hurting him, if they turn around by 2024, he could be in pretty good shape. That's, of course, that's also a big if. I'm not an economist. So I'm not going to predict anything that's going to happen to the economy in the next year and a half. Things might be slow at the moment, but things will speed up quickly in February. Uh, thank you very much, JR. Anytime. That was J.R. Ross of WISPolitics.com speaking with me, WUWM's Chuck Quirmbach. Listen for our segments every Monday and check out the Capital Notes podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. It's Black History Month, and many local groups are finding ways to celebrate, including the Milwaukee Public Library. We'll learn more about their programming this month and explore a new book recommendation in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll look at the health of Wisconsin's waterways and how invasive species and agricultural runoff are impacting our ecosystems. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Tomorrow, scientists, agricultural and conservation professionals, and policymakers from around the state are gathering in Madison to discuss the impacts of phosphorus on our environment. UW Milwaukee School of Freshwater Sciences Center for Policy is hosting the conference and hopes to find ways to address this issue.
commonly used to fertilize agricultural fields. Phosphorus continues to run off into local bodies of water, especially during storms. That runoff results in the growth of algae in lakes and streams, which impacts water quality and makes it hard for other organisms to survive. Harvey Bootsma is a professor at the School of Freshwater Sciences, and he and his team will share some of their research at Tuesday's conference. He joins WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz to explore his work. A lot of the work I had done prior to coming here was on what we call benthic algae, algae that grows on the lake bottom in the nearshore zone. I've been doing that in the lakes in East Africa because there it's really important as a food source for the really species-rich fish communities in those lakes. So I had developed methods and done quite a bit of work on that. And then I came here and it turned out that there was this real problem with algae in Lake Michigan. So the same algae that I was studying in the African Great Lakes, actually the same genus, which there was a food source for many of the fish, here was a problem because it was just growing too fast and there aren't fish or other organisms that feed on that algae here. So that's really what started it. We started looking at that issue and trying to figure out why do we have so much of this algae. It was a problem here back in the 60s and the 70s. That's what I was going to go back to. So talk about that, that sort of evolution. Right. So 60s and 70s, those were the heydays of eutrophication, which is the response of lakes to excess nutrient loading, too much phosphorus going into the lakes, and that's causing too much algae to grow. And in response to that, Canada and the U.S. got together and put together the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. And a big part of that agreement was setting phosphorus targets for each of the Great Lakes because phosphorus is the primary nutrient that controls the production of algae in the lakes. It's what we call the limiting nutrient. So there's a lot of success addressing that issue back in the 70s and 80s. A lot of things were put in place, for example, improvement of sewage treatment plants. So a lot of phosphorus came from wastewater treatment. Some changes in agricultural practices to try to reduce runoff of fertilizers and, and manure from agricultural land and restriction of phosphorus in laundry detergents because there was a lot of phosphorus in, in detergents. And to a, a large degree, that was successful. Algae abundance and phosphorus concentration started to go down in a lot of the lakes. So by the um, 1990s, Lake Michigan was looking pretty good as far as algae goes, which is why when the algae came back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, especially this Clodophora, this, this benthic algae, we were kind of puzzled because we thought we had solved that problem. And in fact, phosphorus was at really low concentrations in Lake Michigan. So the question was, well, why do we have this problem coming back if it seems that we've solved the phosphorus problem? We really had to look at phosphorus if we were going to understand what was causing this, this nuisance algae problem. So before we continue with that, let's talk about how you look at it, how you research it. What's the technique? A lot of our work is kind of a combination of lab experiments and field work. Lab experiments are nice because if you want to address a specific question, for example, what's the effect of temperature on the growth of an algae, you can vary that temperature while controlling everything else. So you get a very definite response and you can say how the algae responds to temperature. But that doesn't necessarily replicate what's going on in the natural environment where a whole bunch of things are changing at the same time. Temperature, light, predators eating food, the amount of nutrients in the system. So you really need to get into the natural environment 
to see if what you're observing there matches with what you would expect based on the lab experiments that you do. So that's the way we approach this. We did some lab experiments, both with the algae and we started looking at zebra mussels and quagga mussels because we suspected they were playing a role in the resurgence of this algae. But then we did a lot of diving in the lake, collecting the algae, measuring how much there was, measuring how fast it was growing, and then measuring conditions in the lake, temperature, light, uh, phosphorus, both phosphorus in the water, dissolved in the water, but also how much phosphorus there was in the algae itself. And by doing that over a period of time, you can start to um, correlate all these things. So you can look at how fast the phosphorus is growing and relate that to things like temperature and phosphorus and compare that with the results you're getting from your lab experiments to try to get a handle on what are the factors in the natural environment that are regulating the growth of this algae. And all of them pointed to two things. One was light. We could see that light played a very strong role in controlling the growth of the algae. And the other was phosphorus. So can I go to the light? So the light has been influenced by invasive species, right? Yep. And so that was one difference we noticed. We looked at historical data for Lake Michigan and some of the other Great Lakes. And there was evidence that they were now clearer than they used to be, which was largely the result of our success in controlling phosphorus input to the lakes because uh, there was less phytoplankton growing in the lakes now. They were less green. The phytoplankton, though, you need phytoplankton. Right. It's right. a tricky business, right? Right. And, and that was the goal of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement in setting phosphorus loading targets for the lake. The goal of that was not to restrict phosphorus per se, but to achieve a certain concentration of phytoplankton, which would support the rest of the food chain. And we still want to do that in Lake Michigan and the other Great Lakes. There's a, a, an important food web out there that needs to be supported by the growth of phytoplankton. But as I said, we kind of overshot our goal with regard to phosphorus. For Lake Michigan, the target was a total phosphorus concentration of seven micrograms per liter. We're down now around four micrograms per liter. And that was partly because we reduced inputs of phosphorus to the lake, but those inputs alone didn't seem to account for how much the phosphorus had dropped in the lake. And we eventually discovered, and other scientists as well, that the mussels were really playing an important role here, the zebra mussels and eventually the quagga mussels that replaced the zebra mussels. Because a lot of that phosphorus is tied up in the plankton in the lake, these mussels are great filter feeders. They're filtering the plankton out of the water column. And at the same time with that plankton, they're sucking phosphorus out of the water column and pumping it down into the bottom of the lake where the mussels live. So that played a large role in reducing the concentration of phosphorus in the lake. But it still left us with this question, well then why is this algae in the near shore growing so much? because the phytoplankton in the offshore was actually going down because the mussels were eating it. But what was happening in the nearshore zone was two things. The mussels were filtering the phytoplankton and other particulate material out of the water. So as I mentioned, the lake was getting clearer. So that was one part of the story was the, the water was a lot clearer now. And if you're an algae living in the nearshore zone on the rocks on the bottom of the lake, suddenly now you're getting a lot more light and like uh, other plants and other algae, uh, the more light you get, the faster you're going to photosynthesize and grow. And then the other part was, because this algae is growing on the bottom, mostly attached to rocks, that's the same place where quagga mussels are growing in the nearshore zone. These quagga mussels are eating all the plankton, 
but they don't put all of that plankton food into growth. Most of it gets metabolized and respired and excreted. And so the phosphorus in the food that they're uh, eating gets recycled and gets excreted. That's essentially fertilizer that those mussels are putting on the rocks in the nearshore zone right where this algae is growing. So the algae's got a perfect storm now. It's got more light coming down through the water and it's got more nutrients in this thin layer at the on top of the rocks. So then how does that influence the the lake's ecosystem as a whole? Well there's a few things as I mentioned the the phytoplankton have gone down in numbers and a lot of the fish in the lake ultimately rely on a food web that's supported by phytoplankton. So that's that's hurt other organisms in the lake. First of all zooplankton, a number of zooplankton species which feed on phytoplankton uh, their numbers have gone down. And then you have fish like alewife, which feed on zooplankton. Uh, they were affected. Their condition went down and their numbers went down. And then you get larger fish that feed on the alewife. And of course, they're going to suffer too if the alewife aren't as nutritious as they used to be. So the whole offshore or what we call the pelagic food web was affected by this loss of phytoplankton. Pelagic is offshore, okay. so the offshore waters. Meanwhile, in the nearshore zone, and we're still studying this, but there was a big change in the food web structure in the nearshore zone as well. A few things happened. First of all, zebra mussels and quagga mussels aren't the only invasive species in Lake Michigan. There's another fish species, the round goby, which also comes from Eastern Europe, the same place the, the mussels come from, that has just exploded in the nearshore zone. And that's partly because round goeys to some extent can feed on zebra mussels and quagga mussels. So they're one of the few fish that actually benefit from these mussels being on the lake bottom. And so the round goby numbers have really exploded and they've displaced some of the other indigenous species that we would traditionally find in the nearshore zone. Such as? Such as uh, yellow perch, spot-tailed shiner, sculpin, some of the mottled sculpin. So the question is, What's that doing to the food web? Some of the fish that have lost their traditional or conventional food sources have been able to adapt to this new food web. For example, fish like brown trout that are, are more of a nearshore fish compared to the salmon, and even lake trout, they've learned to feed on round gobies. So they're actually doing okay. In fact, brown trout are, are going gangbusters now because there's a lot more food for them in the form of round gobies. Lake trout also seem to be able to feed on round gobies. So some species are actually, if not benefiting, at least holding their own mm -hmm. because they've been able to adapt to this new food web. Uh, so in the last couple of years, we've done more research, especially on the round goby, to try to figure out how productive the round gobies are, what are their food sources. Uh, and that's important to know because a lot of other fish are relying on round goby now as a food source. Mm -hmm. And in the last couple of years, one thing we've started looking at is, um, you know, we had some hypothesis about how the mussels were affecting the growth of this nuisance algae. And to test these hypotheses, we said, well, why don't we remove mussels from a certain area and see what happens to the algae? Our hypothesis is that there should be less algae when there aren't mussels there, and the phosphorus content of that algae should be lower because we believe that the algae was getting a lot of its phosphorus from the mussels. So we started doing that work uh, primarily with the National Park Service starting in 2016 up in the Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore area of Lake Michigan. 
there was a small area, a rocky reef, where we went down and all summer divers went down scraping mussels off of rocks. So by the end of the summer, we had about a 40 square meter area that we had scraped all the mussels off. And then we started monitoring that. Well, we're still monitoring it now. What we saw was kind of interesting. Algal abundance didn't go down that much. It went down a little bit, even though the phosphorus content of the algae really went down. And we're still trying to figure that out. If the phosphorus content is so much lower than in that algae, why does it still seem to be growing fairly quickly? But it does support our hypothesis that the algae is getting its phosphorus from the mussels. But another thing we discovered, it's not why we conducted the experiment in the first place, but even now, six years after we started that experiment, mussels have not recolonized the rocks that we scraped clear back in 2016. And that was surprising. We thought within a year they would be colonizing it again and they'd be all over it. Because if we leave something hanging off of our dock out here in the harbor, within a few months it's got mussels growing all over it. And yet on these rocks we weren't seeing anything. And since then we've done a few more experiments where we've uh, removed mussels from larger areas to see what's happening. And again, we're not seeing those areas being recolonized. So now we're, we're moving a little bit away from just the phosphorus story and looking more at um, food web interactions. And what we think is happening is when we remove the mussels, the only way a rock can be recolonized is if villagers, which are the mussel larvae, the very small larvae, settle on those rocks and start to grow as small mussels and then eventually become big mussels. Round gobies aren't that great at eating large mussels. They've got to crack the shells to get the mussels into their, their mouth, but they're great at eating small mussels. They can easily get them in the mouth and their shells are thin enough and soft enough they can easily crush them. So we think what's happening is these rocks are not being recolonized because any small mussels that start to grow on them are being eaten by the round gobies. Ironically, it looks like one invasive species is kind of helping to manage another invasive species. <laughs> Harvey Bootsma is a professor at UW-Milwaukee School of Freshwater Sciences, and he spoke with WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation that you'd like to hear on the show, give our Community Connection Line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. Coming up, we'll get a book recommendation from the Milwaukee Public Library and explore some of the library's programming for Black History Month. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Every month here on Lake Effect, we partner with the Milwaukee Public Library for our Book of the Month series to bring you new reading recommendations. February may be the shortest month on the calendar, but from Black History Month to Valentine's Day, it's filled with so many moments to remember. For this month's pick, MPL librarian Brittany Lee has a read to celebrate both. She chats with Lake Effects' Mallory Chang. 
So Brittany, for the February book of the month, you brought a book that's kind of like Grey's Anatomy-esque novel filled with how a first-generation Ghanaian American is navigating love, friendship, all while on medical rotation. And this is exciting for me as a lover of romance novels and just fiction novels. But Brittany, why was this your pick? So long story short, I'm a nonfiction reader. So I told myself, like, post-pandemic, I want to get back in. I want to try fiction. So the name of the book is called On Rotation by Sherilyn Obubi. The author uh, wrote about, I kind of feel like her life experience. Um, she's of African descent and also a doctor working on her cardiology fellowship in Chicago. And that's where the story's taking place with Angie Apia, who's our main character. Angie kind of is just going through life right now. She's working to be a doctor because her parents pushed her so hard for education. It was either be a doctor or a lawyer. So she went the doctor route. And right now she's just going through rotations, which are pretty much um, doctor's way of learning each position in a hospital to be a doctor. But each rotation is like her life is going through a new interesting turn, plus all her personal life drama as well. So um, I started reading through it and I kind of didn't want to put it down. So it kept my attention and I was like, oh, no, I want to see how this story ends. I don't really like conflicts, which a lot of fiction does have. But um, even the conflicts, I was like, no, it has to work out. And sometimes I was kind of thinking, no, I think these characters should separate. But it was a really nice, even story from beginning to end. And I know that we don't want too many spoilers with the book. And with her personal life drama, I guess, what does it entail? So we start the story. Um, Angie describes how growing up she wasn't always um, the girl who got all the guys. So we hear this first story of how the guy she was supposed to go visit her parents with actually broke up with her. Now she has to go out to the Chicago suburbs to go with her parents so that her baby sister, Tabitha's boyfriend, can come and ask for her hand in marriage. So <laughs> no pressure there. Get broke up with, but then have to be happy for your little sister who's going to get engaged. And then um, after the party, she goes um, back to Chicago because she lives in the city of Chicago with her best friend, Nia. She meets this mystery guy named Ricky. I would say that the attraction's instant, but we find out Ricky has a girlfriend but he didn't disclose that at the beginning. So that kind of turns Angie off. Meanwhile, like I mentioned, she lives with her best friend, Nia. Nia identifies as a lesbian. Um, so I also like how there's a lot of intersectionality in the book. We're dealing with um, children of immigrants as well as interracial relationships and the LGBTQIA perspectives as well. But during her rotations at the hospital, she keeps running into Ricky. So <laughs> there's, there's a lot of fun twists. Yeah, there's a lot of drama. Like, yeah, I'm just shocked. <laughs> and it just sounds like such a like a fun way to escape the real world with some fictional drama that's not your own. What a nice escape to have. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the saddest relationship, well, the relationship that made me the saddest was definitely Angie and her best friend. 
Um, because Angie's so busy, Nia's also having like an identity issue with her like life fulfillment in her career. So whatever's going on with Nia, she's kind of taking it out on Angie, but then Angie's also busy and being a little neglectful. So they have a fallout. I hate best friend fallouts. So it gets to the point where like Nia moves out and Angie's just by herself. And that one felt like, I won't be dramatic and say a death of a family member, but it was really sad. Yeah, those do hurt. Friendship fallouts and friendship breakups definitely hurt more than relationship breakups, I would argue, like romantic relationship breakups. But that's my own opinion about that. <laughs> but this is going to be a very fun read, I think. A very fun keeping on keeping you on your toes type of read for the month of February. And also for the month of February, it is also Black History Month. And MPL is hosting a variety of events across all the branches. And there's a lot happening. Then Brittany, what programming are you looking forward to throughout this month? And what are you excited about? So um, for this month, um, we are offering a lot of programs. The one I'm most excited about is actually going to be at the East Branch on February 14th. Is the Black History Month Book Buffet. So pretty much um, it's just going to be a spread of books. You can come and get a sample of different Black authors. And there's going to be a short reader's advisory presentation with the Book Buffet. So if You've never read an author who's Black or of African descent. You'll be able to find new books as well to read. Um, I think that's going to be fun. And then there's also going to be the Pop Genre Romance Book Club, also at East, um, where they discuss the book Seven Days in June by Tia Williams. Um, that's one of That was a popular book last year, so they're going to just discuss that one. As well as there's a Climate Action Book Club, um, the book they're going to discuss is The Black Agenda by Anna Giffey Opoku Agman. I hate butchering names. And for the children, they're going to have Black History Jeopardy at Village Square. That'll be February 7th. And yeah, those are some of the ones I'm excited about, especially Black History Jeopardy. Get to have fun and also learn. I definitely am excited for the book buffet. It's going to be on Valentine's Day. So you get to learn about a new author, but you also get to love yourself and you get to pick up a new book at the library. <laughs> Brittany, thank you so much for being back here again on Lake Effect. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Brittany Lee is a librarian in the business and periodicals department at MPL's Central Branch. She spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. If you missed the last few Book of the Month segments, you can always find them at wuwm.com. And that wraps up today's Lake Effect. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn how the national Adderall shortage is affecting people with ADHD and how a local doctor is navigating this with his patients. That's tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.